in the first 300 years of the church, the church exploded across the Mediterranean region because of the love that our choir just sang about. It was the love of Jesus that they'd experienced that caused them to love one another. And before they knew it, their movement, their little movement that started in a little backwater town in the middle of nowhere, suddenly was exploding across the region, across the area. In fact, an early, an ancient Roman historian said that this church seemed to grow because the people on the outside would see them and say, look how much they love one another. Because of that love, churches popped up here and there and everywhere, and soon this Christian movement was taking over at least that part of the world in amazing and wonderful ways. I'll tell you this. David Hatt and Leanne and, and Ron and I, we could, all, we could all go to every church growth seminar that exists. We could go to the finest strategic planning uh, seminars that we could find. We could gather up all the leaders in our church and talk about how to put together a way to increase our membership and grow our church and increase our influence on the community and, and all that sort of thing. But if we do not have love at the center of who we are as leaders in this congregation, who we are as a church, period, we will not go anywhere. Our church without love frankly, will no longer exist. It's love that began the church. It's love that moves the church today. And it's love that will take us forward into the future that is before us already. It's that simple and it's that clear. I call John 3.16 the headline verse of the New Testament. Did you remember it? Did you ever memorize it when you were, when you were younger in the church? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever, I, I memorized it in the King James, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but live eternally. Do you hear the beauty of that word? Do you hear what it is saying? For God so loved. For too long, the church for all, maybe the last 150 years or so, the church universal has gotten stuck on that word believe, that somehow there's this, this intellectual tenet we're to subscribe to in order to prove that we truly believe in God in the right way, therefore we'll be justified and included and we won't be spending any time in punishment. That is absolutely not what the verse is talking about in no way, shape, or form. No, no, and no. Did I say no? Just want to make sure. See, if you read the next verse, it says, for God did not send the Son to condemn, but to save. The, the implication in that headline verse is so clear. For God so loved. God's love has already been given. It's already a done deal. It's a fact stated there, clearly done. You want to understand how that works? Look at each one of these children that we've baptized this morning. They are already the apple of God's eye. They are already loved. I dare suspect that if we interviewed the six parents who stood here a moment ago and asked them, when did you begin to love your child? It might have even been before they were born. There's something about that relationship. There's something about bringing one into the world that causes the love that you already have to well up. It's that very same love that God has for all of us. As the creator of all it is, it's God's love that has come to us. For God so loved... Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. That is, to give all of us a clear understanding of what it means to live with God's love at the center of who we are. To let that love guide us in everything we do. That's our foundation. John then writes to an early church to help them understand what this means. To help them see the clear theological indication of their moral imperative. 
David, I practiced that line all night just for you. I want to make sure I got it right. The theological indication of their moral imperative. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, to give a theological grounding to the way they're to live their lives. It's a calling given to the church. The church that John's writing to may have forgotten this a little bit, and so he's writing to remind them, if you love, you know God. If you do not love, you do not know God, for, for God is love. But frankly, this, this word sometimes is, an, is a difficult one to preach and a difficult one to hear. There are just some folks who just almost are certain that we've got to have an in and an out club. There are some folks who will be in and some folks who will be out and they'll be punished and sent away to eternity forever. And we've we got to deal with that mythology. We've got to deal with that problem. There was a, there was a, a woman named Madeline Langle. Do you recognize that name? She's the author of, of the book, A Wrinkle in Time. It just came out as a movie this weekend. My wife and a friend saw it yesterday. They enjoyed it. I'm planning to see it myself later on. But, but back when Madeline was still alive, she did a tour, a book signing tour, where she traveled around the country, spoke at various places. And she stopped at a, at a Bible college in the Midwest, I, I think in Missouri. And she was invited to speak not only about the book she had written that year, but also about her understanding as kind of a lay theologian of God's grace and God's love. You see, A Wrinkle in Time is written, by the way, for children. But I read it when I was a kid and then read it again when I was in seminary because the theological underpinnings there are amazing. Go back and read it with an adult uh, eye and mind. It's interesting to see. Anyway, she's talking at this Bible college and there are these kids jam-packed uh, jam into their, their chapel there. And right in the middle of her speech, this young man, 19, 20 years old, about halfway back in the section right in front of her, he just stands up. He says, Ms. Lengel, I have a question. From the way you're talking about God's love and grace, it sounds to me, he had an angry tone to his voice. It sounds to me like you're saying that God's just going to love everyone. That God's mercy is going to be given to everyone. That God's just going to save everyone. Is that what you're saying? And she said, yes. And he said, but there, there's a problem here. We've got to have a clear line of judgment. There has to be ultimate judgment. If there's no ultimate judgment in the world, the world will just go spinning off into who knows where. We've got to have ultimate. And then she stopped him and said, let me ask you a question. If you die tonight and you stand before God, do you want ultimate judgment or do you need ultimate mercy? He, he sat down. We, we already know the answer. Those who are here on the chancel leading before you can stand here only because of the love and grace of God. We come not because we've proven ourselves, but because we've been washed in the same grace given to everyone. There is, there is no other word given to the world than a word of love and grace and longing for a life blessed by those. But sometimes, though, judgment just feels so much better, doesn't it? Sometimes people just love to kind of separate, and not just our fundamentalist and evangelical friends, but folks on the progressive side of things can, can do the same thing too, kind of be, have this almost arrogant attitude of, well, we know better, therefore you don't know, and you're not really part of our, of our club, of our group. In fact, Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you look at the stories, pay attention to who Jesus spends most of his time with. Have, have you done that? Have you noticed? Who does he talk to the most? Not clergy. Most of the clergy that he talks to, he argues with and cuts them to the quick and then leaves. He basically says, Glenn, I, I don't have time for you because sometimes people like you, like me, people like you think, oh, I've got it all figured out. 
I'd rather spend time with those folks way on the other side of the tracks or, or the folks that live way out that way, the ones who are hurting, crying, weeping, the ones who know they've failed, who know they need some help, who know that the word of grace and love that I bring will give them hope for today and tomorrow. Jesus goes to the ones who are hurt the worst, knowing that that's where he's needed the most. That's why John wrote this little letter to this church. They've gotten stuck in judgmentalism. We don't know all the specifics. We don't know exactly what's going on, but they are absolutely caught up in determining who's in, who's out, who's really a Christian, who's not, who's really got it understood, and, and who does not. We just read a little excerpt this morning from a longer section. This section in John is actually 15 verses long, and the word love appears 27 times. It's as though almost two times a verse. He is saying, I want you to understand this point. Can you please understand it? Can you get it? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Those who love know God. Those who do not love do not know God, for God is love. Tom Wright's a very good New Testament scholar. In his little commentary that I read this week, he said, the reason John has to write this over and over and over again is because churches then and now have a tendency to get caught up in snide, nasty, gossipy conversations. When I read that last week in my office, I wrote ouch with an exclamation point in the margin of the paper. We know it's true, don't we? I'm not talking about First Community Church. I'm barely here a year. I'm just now coming up. I got four days until my one-year anniversary. So I don't know a whole lot yet still. I'm still in the learning phase, although officially after March 15th, I'm no longer the new minister, just so you know that, okay? <laughs> got to be clear about that. But I've been in the church my whole life. I'm a preacher's kid. I've seen the church at its worst. I've seen people beaten up pushed down, thrown aside by the church. What was true for John, it's true for us. We hear these words over and over again so that we can be clear about God's love being given to the world. This isn't about writing a nice little sentiment for a greeting card. This is our, this is our rule of life. This is our commandment, as it were, on how we're to live. And if we aren't living up to that rule of love, then it's time to sit back down and create a reformation and ask ourselves, who are we and what is God, how does God want us to live? Otherwise, we're not the church that God has called us to be. Like I said, though, sometimes it's easier to determine who's in and who's out and kind of draw these lines and pull ourselves in. Uh, when I was in Kansas City, I did some research about the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, the denomination there. That's the denomination in which I was ordained, by the way. And I found this one church, and I found a set of bylaws. It was over in the eastern Kansas side of things. This little church was formed in the 1880s, I believe. Christian church, Disciples of Christ, one of, one of my congregations, one that I grew, might have grown up in. And in their bylaws, it says that no member of our church will drink, smoke, dance, play cards, or fraternize with Methodists. <laughs> David, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I know some fine Methodists. Like David Hett, most of them, most of them are okay. But there's, there's comfort, isn't there? 
there's comfort in judgmentalism and, and kind of setting some people aside and putting some others in their, in their place. We almost are just in, seem to be inclined toward that, that movement. Now, I, how many of you remember the TV show Gilligan's Island? Do some of you remember Gilligan's Island? That's all really? Come on, raise your hand. How many of you watch Gilligan's Island? All right, good. Confession's good for the soul, as they say. I remember one episode where Thurston Howell III, remember Thurston Howell III, the rich guy and his wife, Lovey, are sitting around and they're talking about things and Thurston Howell says in that kind of whatever his voice was, that arrogant guy voice, oh, I'm so glad, Lovey, that we're not like those people out there. And she said, yes, I agree. Do you know one of them said that money can't buy you happiness? He said, oh, really? And she said, yes, I told them if money can't buy you happiness, it's because you're shopping in the wrong stores. (laughs) I got to tell you, these are the people Jesus doesn't have a lot of time for. Now, God's grace goes to everyone. But if that's how we're living, Jesus is going to go find the ones who know they're broken, who know they need love, who know they need hope. His harshest words are reserved for those who think they've got it all put together. Do you remember the story of Jesus and his disciples coming up to the temple? They're at the back of the temple going and entering to get ready for worship. He, they see a Pharisee on one side. A Pharisee in Jesus' day would be a clergy, a person who wore stoles and robes, a person who's educated, somebody who probably had a nice living, comfortable home, maybe some respect in the society. On the other side of the temple entrance, there's a publican. That is a tax collector. In other words, a traitor to his country. A slime ball, really, is what the word means. He's a horrible person. He's getting rich on the backs of those that the Roman government is standing upon. He's hated everywhere. The Pharisee, when he enters into the temple, he stops to pray. He looks over at that publican and he says, thank God I'm not like him. I'm so glad I'm not like him. Thank God for for that. The publican, the, the tax collector, the slime ball, the traitor, with tears in his eyes, tears rolling down his cheeks. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asks his disciples, which one of them went home justified? We already know the answer. Towards the end of Jesus' life, he said to his disciples, my friends, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. He repeated it again and again. The disciples like us sometimes had to hear the same things over and over again to clearly understand that we are called to love one another, to give ourselves equally to each other. But sometimes that's so hard to know, so hard to understand. And yes, I know, we've got a little preacher over here. (laughs) And I want to put $100 right now in a seminary fee (laughs) just to help get him ready. But see, because we, we try to divide, we try to say who's here and who's there and, and who's, and by the way, I love having babies in church, just so we're clear. It's wonderful. It gives us something to pay attention to when the sermon gets boring. <laughs> but sometimes we get stuck, don't we? In trying to determine who's in and who's out. Sometimes we think somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody's got to be the one who determines things and, and in our life and our relationships and all of that. This man came to see me once. He was in his early 30s. He called me up and said, "Uh, my marriage is in in tough place. Could I come see you? I said, sure, please do. A couple days later, he was in my office and we sat down. He said, "Uh, here's the thing, Pastor Glenn. Um, 
I, I want to learn how I can help my wife figure out how to submit to my leadership in the family. I gave him a business card with my wife's telephone number. He said, no, I'm serious. I, I want to know. I said, well, you know, I, I assume you're referring to Ephesians 5 with the text that says, wives, submit to your husbands. I know the text well. I understand it. But right before that, it says that we're called to submit to each other, to give ourselves over to each other. So think of that as sort of the umbrella verse. The rest of it is describing uh, families and relationships in, in, in antiquity and especially in Greco-Roman culture. And so, you know, that's not the key thing. The key thing is to understand that it's this mutual relationship between equals. And he said, no, no, no. I take it literally. I want to know. And he was serious. I said, well, let me tell you about my friend Terry. Terry Terry's a Southern Baptist preacher. He's a good guy. Theologically, he is way over here. And theologically, I'm way over here. We disagree about a lot of things. But we, we played ball together at the YMCA. Got to be good friends. And we're both pastors. And so even though we have disagreements, we got to be really good buddies and lots of things in similar, in, that we share in similarity. And I said, um, one day I asked my friend Terry, how do you interpret that verse in Ephesians that says, that the husband is the head of the household and the wife is to submit to him. And Terry said, oh, wait, we take that literally in my church. I'm the head of the household and my wife must submit to my leadership. I said, really, how, how does that work? He says, in every major decision, I'm the one who makes the final one. I decide at the end, here's what we're gonna do. I said, wow, how's that working out? He said, in 17 years of marriage, we haven't had one major decision. My friend Terry was a practical theologian. <laughs> the man who was meeting with me, though, he didn't laugh. He said, no, I'm serious. I said, fine, read down the text a little bit. Do you see what it says later for husbands? It says, husbands, you are to serve your wife as Christ served the church. Can we unpack that a little bit, I said to him. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The Apostle Paul said that Jesus came and did not see equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. That's the word in the Greek, I said. It's doulos. It literally means slave. And then this same Jesus, he gave his life for his friends, for the world. If those things are true, and I believe with all my heart they are, then the questions for you are, are you willing to be a slave for your wife? Are you willing to serve her? And if necessary, give your life for her. And those questions for my friend are questions for us. Are you willing to give yourself as a servant to the ones you love? Are you willing to hand yourself over, if necessary, as a slave to let that love be real in your family? And if there's someone in your family, in your life that needs you, are you willing to give your very life for them? And it's not just about us individually, but also us congregationally. Are we, First Community Church, willing to give ourselves over to the world as servants, as slaves to our neighbors near and far, to bring the goodness of God's grace and love to everyone we encounter and see? Are we willing to give even the life of our church, if necessary, to bring this word home, to bring this world to the place where all are, are under 
the goodness of God's grace and love. We all understand that that love has already been given, just as it was given and named for these children. It's already been given to the world. Are we ready to do whatever it takes to bring this love to all?